Ivan Provorov, defenseman for the National Hockey League Philadelphia Flyers, refused to don a pride-themed jersey and carry a hockey stick that was wrapped in rainbow tape during a pregame warm-up for the team's annual Pride Night. Rather interestingly, he was found himself in controversy because he refused to do it. What's quite amazing is that, at least for that occasion, he seemed to be the only one. And here are these hockey players, which you think of as pretty rough and, and tumble, pretty strong, pretty rugged individuals. And you have to wonder, was he the only one that has a problem with it? Have they all given in to the pride movement? Or were they simply too afraid to stand up as he was, knowing that there would be controversy? Some of these situations can cause you to be fired from a, a team, maybe not immediately, but someplace down the road. And yet this individual had the courage to stand up and say, look, I'm just not going to do it. I wonder what you would do under the same circumstances. And I have to look in the mirror and say to myself, what would I do under the same circumstances? And it's easy to say that, oh, yeah, I would do that. But that takes courage, doesn't it? I have heard of a case recently where a student, and I believe this was a church member, the son of a church member. I'm not sure all the details on it. At least someone who knew this firsthand who was asked to leave a class because he simply gave the facts of history that were not in agreement with the woke agenda that was being pawned off on them. And he knew the history and was able to rattle it off and point it out, the error in what they were saying, and so he was asked to leave the class. Recently, a young lady was told that she could not mention the name of the former president of the United States in her debate over the policies of the current president. Now, it really matters little what you think of the former president. It's kind of interesting that Mr. Smith and I sometimes get nasty comments from people, either accusing us being pro-Trump or anti-Trump. And it's kind of interesting that we can be both at the same time, each of us, but here's a debate society, and yet was unable to use the name of a former president. It'd be kind of like saying that, well, you can't talk about Ahab if he was the former king of, of Israel. You couldn't talk about him in that way. Or you couldn't talk about Moses or Aaron or somebody else that went before you. It's amazing how... In a debate society where you should have the free flow of ideas, I'm speaking in a worldly sense, I'm not talking about what we would think of because free speech is not exactly uh, the order of the day. There is speech that God tells us is incorrect or wrong. It's something that we shouldn't do. But in this world where we supposedly have free speech, 
That's an amazing thing. Thomas Paine wrote a series of pamphlets. He didn't sign them with his own name, but he signed them Common Sense. This was at the time of the American Revolutionary War. And he opened the very first one with these memorable words, which are the title of this sermon. Quote, These are the times that try men's souls. It was a time of trying, a time of testing for those living in the 13 colonies at that time. What he was saying was, these are times of courage. These are times that try people and point out whether they are courageous or cowardice. It points out what they're made of, the metal that they're made of. So today I'm going to address the subject of courage, why it's needed, and how to act with courage both now and in the future. Because we are living in times that are trying men's souls, and it will get worse before it gets better. I was looking up the subject of courage on the website, going to tomorrowsworld.org, and I was, uh, there's a place that you can type in a word or a phrase. So I typed in courage, and I was surprised how many times Dr. Merritt's name came up on the subject. He wrote and spoke a lot about courage uh, during his time, his lifetime. For example, in 2000, the Tomorrow's World, May, June, Tomorrow's World had an article, True Christians Need Courage. That's what he wrote at that time. And toward the end of his life, very near the time that he died, he wrote an article for the May-April 2017 Tomorrow's World, Build Faith and Courage. And you know, we need to build faith and courage because it is going to take courage in the days ahead. Interestingly, since he wrote that article six years ago, our world has become far more radical and far more, host- far more hostile to God and the Word of God. I just saw an email from Mr. Wahavich about how the Bible has been banned in an elementary school in Utah, of all places. And the reason is that shows how some of these things come back on you. But the conservative governor and the legislature there had passed a law that banned pornographic and uh, other uh, aspects of, of uh, life from being taught in the schools. And so a single lady... Just one person. I don't mean she was single and didn't have a husband. I don't know that. But one one person protested and said the Bible is not fit for our children. Did not cite, she may have cited, but the article that I read did not cite what it was about it. Well, it's true that the Bible does talk about violence in there. But we have all kinds of violence. We have violent cartoons for children. We have drag queens that can talk to preschoolers. But the Bible, which was not a part of any course, 
was banned from the library there. And it's going to get worse. The world in which we live today is far worse than it was even when Dr. Merrith wrote that article about building faith and courage. So we live in a world that requires courage. I wrote an article back in July, August of 2018 for Tomorrow's World, Why Free Speech Matters. And free speech matters even more so today. And in that article, I asked the question, you know, why, or, or brought out the point that many people say that we talk too much about the LGBTQ issue or about several other issues. And yet, since 2018, we see how pervasive these things are and how they are being pushed in schools and in corporations. It's quite amazing how the corporations have been taken over by it. Anheuser-Busch, last I heard now, it's over 20 what billion dollars that they've lost as a result of putting a trans person uh, on uh, their advertising. And then Target had trans clothes for children. Think about that. They're going after our children. Trans clothes for children. I'm not sure exactly what that means. They had something to do with tucking and untucking. I'm not sure I understand all that. Because they were up front. And so Target, being hammered by many people who don't go along with it, moved it to the back. And everybody's cheering because they won. But did they? Before, they didn't have it in the store, apparently. But they moved to the front, and people complained, so they moved to the back. So it's three steps forward, two steps back, which means one step forward, where they can have trans clothing in Target. Kohl's hasn't seemed to learn the lesson yet. But again, it's relentless. It's shocking that major stores beer companies and others are so bent on pushing this agenda that really affects a very small number of people that they're willing to to do all these things. And they just keep relentlessly pushing it forward. And some of you know what it's like because you've had woke supervisors, bosses, and some of you even here have decided to work someplace else because of that. And I'm sure that there are many others across the country that have been affected by it. There will be times to keep keep quiet, and there will be times to speak up. And we need to know the difference. We need to have some wisdom on that. And while I'm mentioning that, I should say we need to be very careful what we put on the Internet. I think it's too late in one sense. We've been been had. Whether Whether you are on social media or not, you're known. Because other people mention your names or they associate them one way or the other. And when the world wants to come after us, they'll know who we are. Because we've given them all the, the bullets to come after us. But there are times to keep quiet. There are times to speak up. Some of us 
may lose jobs and not know what to do next. Decisions will have to be made about education and careers for our young people. Where do you want to go in education and in your careers? Peer pressure will be great upon many, as apparently it was in the National Hockey League with grown men. How much more so with young people? We have many examples of courage in the Bible, as well as examples of cowardice or of a lack of courage. I'd like to begin with that by turning over to Exodus, the 32nd chapter. This is a very familiar situation, but I think it's important that we understand the, the big picture of why it happened. This is the golden calf incident. We're all very familiar with it, but I'll pick it up here in verse 21. Moses had come down from the mountain, and he saw the calf, and he saw the dancing that was going on around the calf. And Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you have brought so great a sin upon them? It's interesting that the expression, a great sin, is used in the context of adultery. You could look up uh, Genesis 39th chapter. And verse 9, where Joseph said, how can I commit such a, an atrocity and sin against God when he was tempted by this lady that uh, the, husband, the wife of the man that he worked for, that he was a servant to? And whenever we find that expression, great sin, it's in that context. And so this was a spiritual adultery that was taking place with the children of Israel. They were serving a foreign god. Remember, they were married to God. It was a marriage covenant, the first covenant. And so they had committed this great sin. And Aaron said, Do not let the anger of my Lord become hot. You know the people that they are set on evil. So immediately he then says that, well, you know the people. Of course, Aaron, uh, Moses also understood. Moses understood his brother. He knew him. And Aaron doesn't seem to be all that bad of an individual, and God didn't cast him aside for this sin that was committed there. But Moses asked him, what did the people do to you? He knew that Aaron wouldn't do it on his own, and it, it's interesting, sometimes we can think of Aaron as being terribly evil, but in reality, he just didn't have the courage to stand up. And so he fell into sin, allowed the people to sin. And so Aaron said, well, don't let my Lord become hot. Your anger, you know the people that they are set on evil. For they said to me, make us gods that shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, Whoever has any gold, let him break it off. So they gave it to me, and I cast it in the fire, and this calf came out. It just jumped out of the fire. And I would imagine when his words came out of his mouth, those words jumped out of his mouth, he probably at that point in time wanted to bring them back when he said it. You know, sometimes we think something in our mind, it sounds good, but then when we actually say it, we realize 
ooh, that was not the thing to say. And we could wish we could take them back. I have to believe that Aaron, don't know, but I would believe that he probably thought, eh, that wasn't a very good explanation. But what we see there is that he was persuaded by those around him. Now, before we run off and condemn Aaron, we have to think, what would I do in the face of a couple million people clamoring to have some sort of an image that we could call God or that, that would remind us of God? They were used to that sort of thing in Egypt. It's easy to think, well, I wouldn't do that. But let me ask this. If you wouldn't do that, what about the other things that you don't have the courage to do? Sometimes going against the peer pressure. What about just obeying God, whether it be tithing, or whether it be Sabbath keeping, or whether it be going to the feast? I think most of us pass those tests. In fact, Many of you here passed the test of courage when you left worldwide. And you may not have known exactly where to go, but you knew that you couldn't stay there because of the direction it was going. So you exercised courage in that, that situation. You exercised faith as well. But courage and faith are not always static. They have, you know, ups and downs, ebbs and flows. And depending on how close to God we are, our faith or our courage can wane a little bit. And we get into a difficult situation and then we do something or say something that we should not do. And I'm sure that's the way it was with Aaron here. Another example is Saul. And we'll go over to 1 Samuel to look at Saul. And I'd like to begin in chapter 10, where Saul was chosen. He had already been anointed by Samuel to be king. And so then Samuel comes into town, and he calls the people together. And verse 20, when Samuel had caused all the tribes of Israel to come near, the tribe of Benjamin was chosen. When he had caused the tribe of Benjamin to come near by their families, the family of uh, Matri was chosen. And Saul, the son of Kish, was chosen. But when they sought him, he could not be found. Therefore, they inquired of the Eternal further, Has the man come here yet? And the Eternal answered, There he is, hidden among the equipment. I like the old King James better. Hidden among the stuff. He was hidden among the stuff. So they ran, they brought him. It says there, they brought him there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. He was head and shoulders above the people. He was a head taller than most everybody else that was there. Apparently a, a handsome, tall, dark, handsome. I don't know if he was dark, but anyway, he was tall and handsome, apparently. And... Knowing how they worked out in the sun, he might have been tanned. But nevertheless, he was a tall individual. And they could look up to him. Now, we also know that he was a warrior. If you read on, he saved Jabesh Gilead, 
That's in the 11th chapter. He brought Israel together to fight against the Ammonites, who had made a rather unreasonable request to the people of Jabesh Gilead. They said, you know, come out here and we'll put your right eye out. Uh, Otherwise, come out and fight with us. And they said, give us seven days. We just want to think this over a little bit and see if there's anybody that will help us. You can read the story there. It's a rather interesting story. But Saul gathered the people together. Saul was not a, a wimp. He, he was very shy, apparently. He wanted to avoid what he was being called to do. But notice that there are three places in the book of Samuel that tell us this. In the 18th chapter, verse 7, that's one of them, 1 Samuel 18, 7. You can write these down, look them up if you like. Uh, the 21st chapter, verse 11. 21st chapter, verse 11, this is 1 Samuel. And 1 Samuel 29, verse 5. It says, So the women sang as they danced and said, Saul has slain his thousands. And David his ten thousands. Now we may focus on David's ten thousands and the contrast between the two. And Saul certainly didn't kill all those people all by himself, but Saul was a leader. He was a military man in that sense, as kings were. And he had been responsible for battles that had killed thousands. And David came along and he killed more, but the bottom line is that Saul was not a wimp. Not when it comes to fighting wars and battles. But then over in the 15th chapter, going back a few pages, something that we're very familiar with, 1 Samuel 15, we see that God told Samuel to make war to punish Amalek. Verse 2, 1 Samuel 15, 2. Thus says the Eternal of hosts, I will punish Amalek, Why? For what he did to Israel, how he ambushed him on the way when he came up from Egypt. And you read elsewhere that he attacked the rear guard, the the weak, the stragglers, as it were. The women, the children, the weak amongst them, the elderly. He says, now go attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and do not spare them. But kill both man and woman, infant and nursing child, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Now there are those who say that, oh, this is awful, this is terrible. This was from God. It wasn't man deciding it. And when we look at the Middle East today in Amalek, the rulers of the, uh, the party, the, uh, amateur, uh, uh what are they called? Uh, the, the, the leaders there in Iran and elsewhere, and you look at the character of some of these people, It might have been better that we didn't have that. But you can take that up with God if you have a problem with it. Saul gathered the people together and numbered them, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek, and he lay wait in the valley, and he fought against them. Verse 9, but Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, and the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good, and were unwilling to utterly destroy them, but everything despised and worthless, that they utterly destroyed. And so we read how the word of God came to Samuel, and how God was displeased with Saul because of this, 
And so Samuel goes and he confronts Saul. Verse 13, Samuel went to Saul and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. But Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? And notice, verse 15, Saul said, They, they, the people have brought them from the Amalekites. For the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the eternal your God, and the rest we have utterly destroyed. So we have utterly destroyed it, but to the people, they spared them. But don't get too excited, Samuel, because they did so, so they could sacrifice them to your God. And Samuel said to Saul, be quiet, and I will tell you what the Eternal said to me last night. And he says, speak on. Now we read this example here in verse 22 where Samuel said, Has the Lord or the Eternal as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Eternal? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. And to heed than the fat of rams, for rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. And because you have rejected the word of the eternal, he also has rejected you from being king. And then in verse 24, Saul apparently is touched in his conscience, and he said to Samuel, I have sinned. I have sinned. You know, that was an admission there. For I have transgressed the commandment of the eternal and your words. And here's the key. Because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. You know, do we follow what people say? Do we fear people more than God? And I think if we're honest with ourselves, there's certainly a great temptation to do so. And I think that in many cases in life, we probably all make that mistake of being more concerned about what people think than what God thinks. How many people do not come to the church because they're more worried about friends and family and relatives and their associates? When Mr. Armstrong came along, he was worried about what his business associates would think if he started keeping the Sabbath. But once he was convicted, once he understood, he decided to obey God rather than be concerned about what man would think. But nevertheless, what we find here in these examples, and if we look in the mirror, I think we all recognize that it's easy to be persuaded by human beings. We're more concerned about what they think than what God thinks. I realize that most people have no idea that tattoos are condemned in Scripture. I understand that. But you see the the sheep-like instinct of how, how many people today, it just seems like everybody has to have a tattoo today. And they don't stop with one, most cases. They just tattoo every place. Why is that? Did they just decide all on their own where nobody ever had one? that Oh, I'm going to do that. I like that. People love to follow others. And as I've given the example before, the young fellow said in uh, uh, the context of uh, are you a conformist, he he said, "I, I want to be an individual just like all my friends. 
And, and he said that so honestly and openly, he didn't realize what he was saying. But what he said is human nature. And I love that honesty because he was really saying the truth that others might not be willing to say. And although he didn't really realize what he was saying, I don't think. You know, the people of Jesus' day were concerned about what everybody thought. Notice over in John, the ninth chapter, John 9, and we'll begin in verse 13. It says, they brought him who formerly was blind to the Pharisees. Now it was a Sabbath when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. So this is breaking into the thought of where Jesus had healed this individual, and it was on a Sabbath day. Then the Pharisees also asked him again and said, well, how did you receive your sight? And he said to them, well, he he put clay on my eyes, and I washed, and I can see. So, therefore, the Pharisees said, well, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. Others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was division among them. Verse 17, John 9, verse 17. Then it says, they said to the blind man again, what do you say about him because he opened your eyes? He said, he's a prophet. But the Jews did not believe concerning him. They had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of him who had received his sight. Verse 19, and they asked them, saying, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? And his parents answered them and said, Well, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But by what means he now sees, we do not know, or how open... Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. He's of age, ask him. He'll speak for himself. But notice verse 22. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had agreed already that if anyone confessed that he was the Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. Now it is interesting here that they have a son who is born blind. And, and you, you have to believe that they must have been absolutely thrilled that he could see. But in spite of that, they feared the people more than they feared God and the one that God worked through, Jesus Christ, to heal this man's eyes. Interesting. So he said, he's of age, ask him. Let's notice over in the 12th chapter of John, John 12, just to pick up another example of this. And there are many that we could turn to in the New Testament. But here in verse 42, it says, Nevertheless, even among the rulers, so these are people who are the rulers of society. These are individuals who have risen to the top of society, or at least the upper echelons of society. And you would think that they were people of character and strength. Nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. They were afraid they'd be put out of the synagogue. They were afraid they might lose their job. I'm just referring to the things that could happen to us. They were afraid that they might be docked in school. 
They were afraid of any number of things. For they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. Now, when it says they loved the praise of God more than the praise of, um, and the praise of men more than the praise of God, in other words, they wanted to fit in with people. It wasn't that the people are just, you know, praise you, whatever. It, it, it's a, you get the sense here that they, they just would rather fit in with their friends and other people than they would to worship God and, and uh, care what he says. Now, the Bible, which is so full of examples of courage and cowardice, shows that there were individuals of character, people that you and I would like to emulate. It's interesting that you don't read of all of the examples of people who followed the crowd. We've read a few of them here. These were individuals that should have been leaders, and they made mistakes. We're not condemning them all for it. But nevertheless, we don't want to follow their example. But here are some individuals whose example we'd like to follow. I'm just going to give a couple examples here in the book of Daniel. And we're all very, very familiar with this. But we pick up the story in the first chapter of Daniel. And what we find is they are already in captivity. The first couple of verses point out how Judah had uh, been taken captive and the king had been taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar. And, and then we, we pick up the story here with these four young Jewish individuals. Sometimes they call them Hebrew children. But Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We pick up the story at this point, but I'd like to go back a little bit in the story. And we'll have to speculate a little bit, but I, I want to do this for the sake of our young people. I know that many of our younger people, they're in their, you know, 18 and up, are up in Blowing Rock right now because we have the Living for Tomorrow, and I think they're about uh, uh, 43, I believe it is, uh, that are up there, 24, no, maybe 45, whatever, it's 23 and 20, 20 or 21, uh, couple more fellows than girls, but they're, they're up there. They're 18 to 30 years of age. Um, but we have others who are younger here. And, and I, I really would like to see if I can help you to think through. But, of course, it doesn't matter whether we're young or old. We still have to think these things through. In fact, Mr. Smith, I think, has a, a sermon on the subject of old and young. I, I don't know what it's about. My wife was watching it this morning. I'll have to go back and watch it later on. But these things apply to us no matter what our age is. But I especially want to address the young people because you've grown up in a world that you don't understand. And I don't mean that as, as an affront to you. Uh, you. You can't understand the way the world has been other than what you read and what other people tell you. You've just been dropped here on planet Earth, as it were, uh, not from an alien society, but all of a sudden you came out and 
you know, these bright lights and the doctors and all that sort of thing. And, and you didn't really know what was going on. And, and you start growing up and you get to be a, a teenager. And all that you know is the life that you've seen. And, and so much of it you were protected from because you probably didn't read all the newspapers. You probably didn't watch all the news. You may watch some. But as you get to be a teenager, you start getting interested in the world around you and what's happening. But it's hard to understand the world that went before. Just since Dr. Merrith died, our world has changed dramatically. It's only been, what, six years? Approximately, not quite six years, I don't think. 2017 to now, in July, I think it was. Six years. And our world has changed dramatically. And we can't even begin to comprehend the world five years from now. We were talking about a transportation explosion, which we've seen in the last 50 years or so. And we also talked about knowledge shall increase, as it says there in Daniel, the first uh, 12th chapter, verse 4. And we were talking about the explosion of knowledge. But look what we've seen here since the beginning of this year. Oh, we heard about AI But most of us didn't know too much of what AI was all about. And we're just beginning to find out. And it's so frightening that some of the leaders in AI are saying, whoa, we may have created a monster here. We can destroy life off all, all life off the face of the earth through biological weapons, chemical weapons, nuclear weapons. And now there are those who think that Artificial intelligence can destroy all life. And I I think that most of us don't comprehend what these leaders, such as Elon Musk and others, what they understand, what they know about it. Some of them that helped to create it. They know something that most of us don't understand. I, I confess, I don't understand at all. But the more I learn about it, the more dangerous it becomes. It really is because stalking, somebody stalking you, uh, it, they, they can follow you wherever you might be. They can imitate somebody else. You've got singers that are worried about it, songwriters. But this is, this is just the, the little part of it. That's not the big danger of it all. Now, they had this scare here the other day where this Individual uh, from the Air Force had said, a colonel in the Air Force said that, uh, you know, AI uh, attacked with, through, through a, a drone, I guess, attacked the operator. Well, now they've come out and said, no, that really didn't happen. Um, I, I don't think that it happened. Who knows, whatever it is. But there, there's stuff going on out there that, that people know about. And... Our world is changing dramatically, and when it comes to a knowledge explosion, it's just begun. We thought it was exploding before. You know, if it was a conventional explosion, now it's a nuclear explosion. Uh, It is something that is happening so rapidly that we'll have a hard time knowing what our world is going to be like even a year from now, much less five years from now. But here are these individuals. I want to get back to that. Here are these individuals, these young people. And they were growing up in a world that was being transformed before their very eyes. They they just, yeah, they were born into Judah. 
And they, they grew up there. And what kind of a society was it? Well, when you, you look at what God says about it through the prophets, it was a very corrupt world. That's why God caused them to go into captivity. Just like our world is a very corrupt world. And the reason that our nation, our peoples are going into captivity, and you might find that, oh, that can't happen. It's beginning to be more possible all the time. This was something that was almost impossible for us to understand several decades ago. Not so much now. We are on the the verge of a financial collapse if things don't change. And I'm not talking about the debt ceiling that they're talking about there. Victor David Hansen was pointing out that the uh, the debt to uh, a GDP ratio is the highest it's, it's ever been, uh, even, I think, more so than during World War II. It's one, it's like a, we, we owe a dollar thirty-four compared to the dollar that uh, the, the, the country produces. That's unsustainable. In just a few years, very few years, two or three, four years, two years, I think is what he said, the interest on the national debt will be 10% of GDP. It'll be higher than what we spend on the military. That's just the interest. And that can go higher as interest rates stay high and some of these bonds have to be renewed. It's going to have to be higher. We're on the verge of all kinds of things right now that I think that most people can see there's our nation is going in a very bad direction. And as the United States goes, so goes Canada and Australia and New Zealand and Britain. The Anglosphere is coming apart. And I think that anyone who has eyes to see can recognize that's happening. Well, this is what was happening to the young people who lived in Daniel's day. There were all kinds of problems. And so Daniel and his friends had to decide which way to go. Could they follow all of their friends? Or would they be the one or two or three percent who resisted peer pressure and did things differently? Well, we find that they obviously were a part of the one or two or three percent, whatever it was, that didn't go along with the crowd. Because we pick it up here in Daniel, the first chapter, and in verse 3 it says, The king instructed Ashpenaz, the master of the eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles. Now notice the description here. Were these young men playing video games? I know they didn't have video games then. But they had other kinds of distractions. And when I say video game, I'm not talking just about somebody plays a game. I'm talking about people who get caught up in those things. There were other temptations. I don't know what all of them were, what the games were, what the things that they were doing. But I guarantee those young people who grew up in that society were not very close to God. And they had their distractions. And so here's the description of young men in whom there was no blemish. Well, you may not have much to say about that. But good-looking, again, you might not have too much to say about that, but you can comb your hair. You can do certain things that will enhance your your look and, and be thankful that you have hair. 
but notice, gifted in all wisdom. Now, wisdom is a gift, but it also goes along with improving one's wisdom. When you read the Proverbs, why does God give us the Proverbs? To give young men discretion and understanding. And, and so we have our part to do in that. Obviously, these young men were not just hanging out on the corner, smoking pot or whatever they had back then, but they were spending some time in the books. Gifted in the wisdom, possessing knowledge. Knowledge comes from, from outside. You have to, so you have to mine that knowledge. And quick to understand who had ability to serve uh, in the king's palace. They understood protocol. They understood how you address some people. And, and you know, when, when you look at that, you're, you're looking at something that is, it's not intangible, but not anybody is going to be able to serve in the king's palace. They were people who understood protocol. They understood how to dress, how to conduct themselves, how to carry themselves. And whom they might teach the language and the literature of the Chaldeans. So obviously they were young men who would be educated. These are the young men that were chosen. Not the 99 who were out there hanging out with their friends doing everything that was wrong. Or just simply not doing anything. You know, I heard a discussion on the radio going home yesterday from work. They're talking about where are all the young men? We have more jobs than we've ever had available, paying, in some cases, 20 bucks an hour, 15 to 20 bucks an hour in restaurants and stores and different places like that. But where are they? They can't find these teenagers. They're, they're wanting to lower the age group so they can work 50 hours. You know, a 14 year old can work 50 hours. They stopped doing that a long time ago because of the sweatshops and everything. But they want to give people an opportunity and there's, there's, there's money to be made. I, I, I recall, I, I'm sorry if I'm dating myself, uh, and, and some of you are older than I am, but I, I can remember mowing lawns for pennies, really. I think one of my mowed for 10 cents, and that was a push mower. That was not, you know, I mean, this is not a power mower at all. The power came from pushing it. They weren't, it wasn't a big lawn, but nevertheless, did that. Shoveled snow for, you know, pennies, 15, 25 cents. I think I made 50 cents one time shoveling somebody's sidewalk. And that's because it was the first day I ever did it when I saw that there was gold in that that white stuff. I went out there with the only shovel I had, which was one of those fold-up army shovels. And somebody had some snow drifted up against their door, and I think they paid me 50 cents for the entertainment value. <laughs> but we realize there, there's money out there. Now, I grant you, when I was real young, you could buy a candy bar for five cents. Uh, that same candy bar today would be, I have no idea because I don't buy candy bars, but, uh, you know, maybe uh, $2 or something. But you can figure out the math. What you can get paid today is a whole lot more than you could get paid back then. When I was in Canada, $35, $50 for somebody to shovel your walk. 
that's a lot better than 25 cents. And 25 cents was a pretty good tip. And that's what it was, a tip. We didn't tell them how much. They just, we just took what they, they gave us, a little change in their pocket. We have somewhere between 5 and 7 million people in this country, that men that are able-bodied, I forget the exact age, something like 25 to 45 or 25 to 50, who are sitting on the sidelines, who refuse to work. They would not have been here in the book of Daniel. These were men who had some initiative that were going to do something. And so when we read over here in the third chapter, we see that these are men of character. They started out that way. They were young men, teenagers, no doubt. And yet they were individuals that God could use, and he used them in a powerful way. Now, we know about this image that Nebuchadnezzar set up, and he told everybody to bow down to it, a rather unreasonable request, but pretty direct request of what it was all about. I want to pick it up in verse 14, because Nebuchadnezzar heard that these three individuals had not bowed down to it, and they were brought before him. And then in verse 14, Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the the gold image which I have set up? Now, the very fact that he even asked them about this and then gave them a choice would indicate that, obviously, he knew these young men who worked in the palace to some degree. And you get the impression that he really didn't want to throw them in the fire. He says, now, if you are ready at the time that you hear the the orchestra strike up uh, and you fall down and worship the image, good. But if you do not worship, you shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? The fact, again, that he gave him a choice because anybody else out there, he probably would have just thrown in the furnace if there were any others that didn't. We don't know where Daniel was at this time. Maybe he was traveling. Who knows what was happening there, but we can be sure that he wasn't bowing down before the image. But these three men were were reported on. And so Nebuchadnezzar asked the question, the latter part of verse 15, And who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? What God can deliver you from my hands? Now, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered that question. The answer said to the king, verse 16, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. We don't need to think this over. We've already made up our mind. If you are asking a question, what God can save us, if that is the case, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. But they didn't know the end of the story. And they said, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. They understood there is a resurrection. But if not, if God does not rescue us from this fiery furnace, O king, uh, that we do not, let it be known, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. Now, if you can't talk to your employer, or you can't, refuse to don a, a, a pride uh, 
whatever it might be, that then don't think that you would stand up to Nebuchadnezzar because he was far more frightening than any employers that we would have. Far more frightening than any teacher that you might have. Again, we're not talking about being obnoxious and just opening our mouth in the wrong way, but when it comes right down to it and you have to make a choice of doing what is right or doing what is wrong. Again, I could use the example of tithing. Do you fear the creditor more than God? Who is it that you fear? Do you have faith that God can help you? It says here, Nebuchadnezzar was full of fury. And his face changed. I, I can remember when I was a young man, there was a fellow that they just didn't like me. He was always wanting to, to beat me up or something. And his, you know, you could just see the, the veins in his neck. He'd be so angry. I never understood why he was so angry with me. Maybe it's the way I looked. I don't know. He just didn't like me. Well, maybe that was because I was a bully someplace else. And uh, God was letting me find out what it was like. Robert Townsend gives some insightful thought on the subject of decision-making. Because here was a decision they had to make. Either bow down or die. Or God intervenes, but they didn't know. Had they ever seen anybody thrown into a furnace and saved? They didn't know how this was going to turn out. Are we to assume that they had no fear of Nebuchadnezzar? I'm sure they did. But they feared God more, didn't they? Robert Townsend gives this insightful thought. He says, values are critical guides for making decisions. When in doubt, they cut through the fog like a beacon in the night. What we truly value helps us to make the right decisions, in other words. It, it becomes very clear. I think that when we left the Worldwide Church of God, some of us, many of you, when we left, it, it was really quite simple in one sense. It wasn't that it was easy, but to know what to do was very clear. And the reason for that is because of what we valued. We valued the truth. We valued God's word, his commandments. And so that cut through, what we valued cut through. And they were critical guides for making the right decision. And there really was no doubt then, but there were probably doubts as to, well, you know, at the beginning, which way do I go, what do I do? But when in doubt, our values cut through the fog like a beacon in the night. We also have the case of Daniel in the lion's den. And again, that's pretty easy. We know the end of the story. We've not been faced by a hungry lion. At least most of us have not. I've never been that close to a lion. I have heard from people who've heard a lion in the wilderness roar or in, in you know, outside that it's a terrifying thing. And MGM used to have this lion, you know, that would roar. Uh, I, I think it was far, far worse than that in real life because anybody I've talked to who have been close to a lion roaring uh, says that, you know, it's pretty awesome. And so here are all these hungry lions there, 
and Daniel has to make a choice. And he could have rationalized, well, I, I won't pray or I'll just sit in my chair and pray, but I'm not going to bow down on my knees because I don't want God to, I, I don't want these people to find me. No, he did what he had always done. That was a value for him. He, he knew that this is what he needed to do no matter what the king said. And God spared him. Let me give you four quick keys to courage. Spend time on the first two and just cover the last two briefly. But there are four keys to courage. And one is having a greater cause than the self. A greater cause than oneself. We see carnal men and women give their lives for this reason. They don't have to have God's spirit to do this. We see this in warfare where somebody puts his life on the line to spare the life of someone else. He sees a greater cause, even in going into battle, fighting. Many men go off to war because they've been, they've been drafted. They really don't want to be there, but they know that they've got to do it. And so they do their part because they see a greater cause. They want to protect freedom. They want to protect their families back home. And so people will give their lives They will step out in faith. They will exercise courage because there's a greater cause, a greater reason than just themselves. We see this in Christ's example, Matthew, the 26th chapter, Matthew 26 and verse 39. Matthew 26, verse 39, it says, He went a little further and fell on his face as Jesus and prayed, saying, Oh, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And we know that he he prayed this three times that night. He wanted to avoid a crucifixion. He knew what a crucifixion was all about. No doubt seen people crucified. He knew what was coming. He wanted out of it, as any human being would want out of it. But he said, not my will, but yours be done. Not only feared God, but he saw a greater cause. He was willing to give his life. You can read there in um, Philippians. Uh, no, I guess First uh, Peter 3, uh, verse 18. You can read that. I'll just refer to that. First Peter 3, 18. But we see that he was willing to give his life for a greater cause, so that you and I could have life. We're very thankful that he exercised courage in doing so. So for a greater cause, that's one reason to have courage, or one reason that helps us to have courage. The next one is the fear of God. In Exodus, the first chapter, we read an interesting case here, Exodus 1, and This was, we'll pick it up in verse 15. Uh, The king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, of whom the name of one was Shifra, and the name of of one was, um, the other was Pua, or Pua. Now, it's interesting because their names are given here. How many people are left out of Scripture? But these ladies were mentioned there. There's a lot of speculation that they were Egyptians, that they weren't Hebrews because of the way that it states it here. And he said, when you do the duties of midwife for the Hebrew women, so 
sense for the, the Hebrew women as though they are separate, and see them on the birth stools. If it's a son, you shall kill him, and if it's a daughter, then you shall live. Then she shall live. But midwives feared God. They feared God. Now, what their background was is hard to say. But they had a fear of God, whether it was the true God, it's hard to say there. But they did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the male children alive. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing and saved the male children alive? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, verse 19, Because the Hebrew women, so he's as though they're separate, are not like the Egyptian women, for they are lively. I like the way that puts it there. They're lively and give birth before the midwives come to them. And notice verse 20, therefore God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very greatly. And so it was because the midwives feared God that he provided households for them. So God rewarded them in this particular situation. Now, Dennis Prager, I'm sure many of you have heard of him. He's Jewish, and he wrote a commentary, uh, one on Genesis, one on Exodus, maybe some others, but this is one from Exodus. And he talks about this situation here. And when I say Dennis Prager, I, I, I want us to understand this is a very, very persuasive individual, a very logical individual. In fact, he calls it the rational Bible. But we need to be careful because he's coming, first of all, from a Jewish perspective, which is not necessarily the right perspective in every case. But he has a lot that is very good. And he makes this point about the midwives. He says, people who fear those who are more powerful than they are. Therefore, or people fear, this is natural, people fear those who are more powerful than they are. Therefore, the only way not to fear powerful people is to fear God. Thus, in the instance recorded here, those who feared God saved Hebrew babies while those who feared Pharaoh helped drown Hebrew babies. It was the midwives' fear of God that liberated them from fear of the Egyptian tyrant. This point is often overlooked. Fear of God is a liberating emotion, freeing one from a disabling fear of evil, powerful people. This needs to be emphasized because many people see fear of God as onerous rather than liberating. So if we want to exercise courage in the days to come, we need to have a deep abiding fear of God. Fear God more than man. He has to be number one. As we read there in, in uh, Luke, the 14th chapter, verse 26, he has to come first. Jesus has to come first in our lives. He said that he had to be first. So that's the second Point. The third point is faith in God. And I'll refer you to Hebrews 11 for this point. Because the people there that we read of in, in Hebrews 11, they looked to a reward. They saw the big picture of things. But they had faith that God would work things out for them. And that's essential if we're going to be courageous. And the fourth point, I said I'd just spend a little bit of time on this last two Future behavior is the best predictor 
is best predicted based on current behavior. So future behavior is best predicted by current behavior. And the person that thinks that, well, I'll just do whatever I have to for now, and then I'll stand up later on and be accounted is making a mistake. And there are people that do that. They violate God's law with the idea that, well, I can repent, I can change later. And sometimes it just doesn't work out very well. God is going to test us one way or another. Courage is a rare commodity. Courage and cowardice often show up unexpectedly for a variety of reasons. As I said earlier, courage is not static. It ebbs and flows for reasons that we're not always able to understand. Think about Elijah. Elijah took on the 400 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of what, uh, the Asher or whatever prophetesses. Not that they were women, but men who were supporting a pagan goddess. When you go back and you read that there. He took all those on. But then Jezebel said, by this time tomorrow, I'm going to have your head. So many words to that effect. What did he do? He took off like a scared rabbit and ran all the way down to the south of the country. Now, I'm not going to condemn Elijah because I have the impression that he was a pretty powerful individual. But isn't it interesting that in one instance he shows great courage and then in the next instant and very shortly after that, he runs scared. What about Peter? In the reverse order, Peter denied Christ three times. But after he received the Holy Spirit, he boldly stood up before the Sanhedrin. And we're told that he was crucified upside down. Whether that's true or not, that's a tradition. And you have to wonder about some of those traditions. But apparently he was, he was uh, uh, crucified or he was martyred. So courage can come and it can go. It's not always static. Dennis Prager, again, in his commentary on the book of Exodus, makes this observation. Courage is the rarest of all good traits. He said there are far more kind and honest people than there are courageous people. Aaron might be a good example. He might have been a kind, an honest person, but he didn't have courage when he needed it. And all of us need to have courage for the future. Robert F. Kennedy, his most, uh, what, what many considered to be his greatest speech was termed Ripple of Hope. It was given at uh, the University of Cape Town in South Africa on June the 6th, 1966. And he said this, few are willing to brave the disapproval of their fellows. Think about that. Few are willing to brave the disapproval of their fellows. The censure of their colleagues, being censured by their colleagues. The wrath of their society. Moral courage is a rarer commodity than bravery in battle or great intelligence. How true that is. You know, I don't know about you, but I, I, I try to pray for courage. 
we don't know exactly what's going to happen tomorrow or the next day or a year from now. Tribulation isn't going to start tomorrow or even next year. I'm, I'm fairly certain of that. But a lot has to happen before that time. And our society is going in a very, very bad direction. Every generation has its challenges. We didn't ask to be born when we were born. We could look back and think, well, this was a better time to be born sometime previous to this. But every generation has its challenges. The fact is, we were born when we were born. We've been thrown into this just like Daniel and his three friends were thrown into the end of the nation of Judah. And yet God can spare us. God can work through us. He can do incredible things. And if God did incredible things through young people back then, how much more will he do so at the end of the age? We truly are living in the last days. As Thomas Paine wrote, these are the times that try men's souls. And what's ahead, what's ahead for all of us, will determine just how courageous we truly are.